If you brought your Bible with you today, I want to encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, if you did not bring a Bible with you, in the seat pocket in front of you, you'll find a blue Bible. And in the blue Bible, you will find Luke chapter 10 on page 1615. So I want to encourage everyone to find that. That's the text that we're going to be looking at today as we bring this series we've been in for the last four weeks to a close. If we have not met, my name is David, and I serve as a senior pastor here. And if you are with us for the very first time. Thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for giving me the chance to share with you. Uh, We're going to wrap up this series, bring it to a close with the final message, uh, which is titled, Wrestling with the Bible. And it is appropriate that in preparation for a sermon titled, Wrestling with the Bible, I have done a fair amount of wrestling myself. Um, and that started several months ago as we were putting this series together and thinking about the different uh, uh, topics that we needed to address along the way and thinking about what order in which we, we needed to do that. This message, I, I couldn't figure out where it fit or where, where it needed to fit for, for you in the context of the series. And as recently as a few weeks ago, got together with some staff and said, hey, we're a few weeks into the series. Where do you think, where do you think this message fits. Now, obviously, we stuck here. It's, it's, on the, it's at the end of the series, but, but here was my hesitation. I want you to hear this up front. My hesitation was that you, if you've been here the last four weeks, uh, and, and you're here today, you, you could perhaps walk away with the false impression that if you just do everything that we've talked about in the last four weeks, you wouldn't need this message, Right? Like, like this could be, you could walk in and say, okay, this is the, if everything else fails message you need to hear. Like if you, if none of that works, then, then you come here. And, and I actually want to encourage you to think about it the exact opposite way. What I want to encourage you to think about that when you live into what we've been talking about over these last four weeks, when you develop in your own life and you engage the scriptures on a consistent basis in your life, you get the opportunity to find yourself here at this point where we talk about wrestling with the Bible. Now, I know for many of you, that may be the exact opposite way that you think about it. You may think about wrestling as the thing that you try to avoid. What I want to challenge you to think about today is that wrestling may, in fact, be what God is calling you to embrace. And so, for us to get started, let me, let me define for you what I mean by this whole idea of wrestling with the Bible. And you might want to write this down because you may need to think about it. Uh, but this is what I would suggest to you, that wrestling is not about finding answers to our questions, but discovering the better questions that we should be asking. Wrestling is not about finding answers to our questions. That's called learning. I mean, that's, that's, that's what learning is. We have questions, we find answers. But wrestling, what I want to suggest to you, it's really more about discovering the better questions that we should be asking. And I'm going to even go so far as to say, you don't even have to take my word for this. What we're going to look at in Luke chapter 10, uh, we're, we're going to see Jesus do this exact same thing. Uh, in an, an engagement with a man who comes to him looking for answers to a question... And we're going to see the way in which Jesus invites him to discover and to begin to ask a much better question. So Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. And we're going to look at one of the most famous stories in the Bible. You may not have 
read this story before. There are a ton of people who have not read Luke 10, uh, beginning in verse 25. But many people know at least the, the, the phrase that comes from the story, the, uh, the, the identity that comes from the story, the idea of a good Samaritan. If I tell you that person was a good Samaritan, most of us have a sense of what that means simply because the way in which we use that term in our, uh, in our world today. But we're going to look at both the conversation that preceded the telling of the story as well as the story that Jesus shares uh, in response to this conversation. We're going to start at verse 25, and let's, uh, let's dive in. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, expert in the law, this is not law the way we would think about it. This is Jewish law. This is ritual law. Are you living uh, as, a, as a good Jew? And he brings to Jesus this question. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Important question, right? I mean, that's a, that's a big deal question. And here's what Jesus does in response to the question. He answers with a question. Now, let's just be honest. Isn't that annoying? I mean, when you come to somebody with a question and they respond with a question, oh, gosh, they want me to learn, you know. But, but we see Jesus do this all the time in the Scriptures, all the time in the Gospels. Someone brings to Jesus a question, and He doesn't answer the, He doesn't provide an answer. He instead provides a question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, what do you think? And here's what the expert in the law says. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you don't have to turn there right now, but if you were to look at Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked this same type of question, uh, and, and this is the answer that Jesus gives. I mean, it's word for word what Jesus says when he talks about how, uh, The question is, how do you sum up the law? Jesus says the exact same thing that this expert in the law says. So it's not surprising that when you go to the next verse, this is what Jesus says in response. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So you get to verse 28 in this story and you're thinking, wow, what a, what a neat moment. <laughs> I mean, this guy comes to Jesus. He has a, he has a question. Jesus gives him the chance to answer the question, and he actually gets it right. He gets it right, and Jesus gets to say, wow, good job, gold star, A+. plus. That's awesome. That, that's it. You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. If you just stop there, it's just a nice heartwarming moment between Jesus and the expert in the law. But then we get to verse 29, and here's what Luke tells us. He, the expert in the law, he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus another question. Who is my neighbor? And, you know, if it's annoying that people sometimes answer questions with questions, this, this may be even worse when someone says, well, let me tell you a story. Okay, I'm going to be here a while. All right, I'm going to just sit down. So Jesus responds by sharing a story. And again, many of you are familiar with this story. There is a man who is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And most of you have never made the trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, but the original audience of Jesus would have been familiar with that road. And because they were familiar with that road, they weren't surprised when Jesus said the man was robbed, the man was beaten, and he was left for dead. It was a dangerous place to travel. Uh, he's beaten, and he's robbed, and he's left for dead. And the next thing that happens in the story is Jesus says a priest walks by. Now, let, let's just, so that you can really grab hold of what Jesus is trying to get the expert in the law to lean into here, let's imagine that this is a modern story, 
okay? This is one of you, right? And you are on the side of the road, and you have a flat tire. And, and you, you see me just coming down that road, and maybe you're outside your car, and you're thinking, Pastor David's coming. I'm going to be okay. And I just sailed on by. That's what happens. The priest, the religious leader, the next person is a Levite, another religious, and they both go right on past this guy. But luckily, there's a third person that, that, that passes by, and, and Jesus identifies him as a Samaritan. You may not know what or who a Samaritan is, but the expert in the law certainly knew what Jesus meant when he identified him as a Samaritan. And because he knew who the Samaritan was, the expert in the law had to be completely shocked by what happens next in the story. Verse 34, 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So in other words, if you were the person on the side of the road, the person who'd been robbed and beaten, the Samaritan does exactly what you would want anyone to do. He takes pity on him, and he does something about it. He doesn't just stare up into the sky like, I'm not seeing what's going on over there, I'm just going to walk up. No, no, he doesn't ignore. He doesn't ignore the need that is around him. Instead, he, he says, someone needs help. I'm going to offer help. And if you don't know who the Samaritan is, then this is one of those stories that, like, at this point, you're like, okay, I get it. That's a nice, you know, the moral of the story is, <laughs> you should help people. Okay, that's, I, I, I get that. But when you remember and understand who the Samaritan was, and what Jesus is doing in this story by placing this person in the character of the hero of the story. You realize that this is not a nice heartwarming story. This is not a just go do good things and help people out, grab a lollipop on the way out kind of story. This is a direct rebuke that Jesus is offering to the expert in the law because in his world, the Samaritan was the enemy. The Samaritan was those people. The Samaritan was, was them. They, they were the people who Jews saw as unclean and unworthy of having any relationship with God's chosen people. It was common practice. If you were walking down the road and you were a good Jew and you saw a Samaritan walking towards you, you were supposed to walk to the other side of the road just to make sure that no contact happened between the Jew and the Samaritan. In other words, let's flip the story around a little bit. It's a Samaritan traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he's bleeding and he's been left on the road to die. Jews would have walked right past and would have even assumed 
that God would have affirmed that callous response. So what is Jesus doing here? Oh no, it's not, a, it's not a nice heartwarming, hey, here's the moral of the story. It is a direct confrontation of the anger and hatred that has developed between these two groups of people. And it's revealed in the way in which Jesus finishes the story with a question of his own. He says to him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So we have a man who comes to Jesus and he's, he's trying to find an answer to his question, who is my neighbor? And the response that Jesus offers is to tell a story and then to, to suggest that there is actually a much better question that needs to be asked. And the question is not who is your neighbor? The question is who is a neighbor in this story. For about 18 months, I think, by, by my calculations, we as a nation have been asking a question. And we've been doing so because we've been in the heated, busy political season. If you think pastors are not aware well in advance of what is about to happen when we enter into a heavy, heated political season, you're crazy. We know exactly where we're going. We know exactly where we're heading. That's why we do series like Be a Builder and things like that, because we know what that does to all of us. And in the midst of a heated and busy political season, we've been asking a question. The question we've been asking is, who is my neighbor? And because we as human beings live with this odd assumption that everyone in our world is just waiting to hear our opinion, you can laugh, it's okay. So much so that we just, we think the world can't survive without our opinion. We've, we've been also participating in that conversation and that discussion and that debate. And because it's gone on for so long, regardless of what answer you may have provided to that question, regardless of, regardless of what conversations that you have had or where you have fallen in the context of those conversations, because it's gone on for so long, about 20 seconds ago, all of you got super, super anxious because you thought you were about to hear my opinion as well. <laughs> but that's not what I'm going to do today. Instead, here's what I want to do. I want to offer to you a suggestion. And I want to begin by saying, if your heart is as my heart is, if you at some point in your life have said, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I believe he is the son of God. I believe he has come to save my life and my soul. I believe that he has claimed me and I want him to be Lord of my life and I want to be a part of his kingdom. If your heart is as mine and, and, and what you want more than anything in your life is for everything in your life to in some ways reflect his life. You long for the words that you share and the conversations that you have and the, the way in which you listen to the people around you and give them time and attention. You want that to, 
to be that which would also represent Jesus, then what I want to, in humility and love and grace as a pastor, suggest is that we are asking the wrong question. And there is a much, much better question that those who sincerely desire to follow Jesus should be asking. The question is not who is my neighbor. The question that people of faith must wrestle with is this, what kind of neighbor is Jesus calling and challenging me to be? That's the question we need to be wrestling with. That's the question that we need to be struggling with. And I would also suggest that if you just spend a few moments thinking about that question, all sorts of other questions will come up. Because if you really start to, to, to prayerfully consider, okay, what kind of neighbor is Jesus calling me to be? It's going to lead you to all sorts of other questions like, if you were to be that kind of neighbor, if you were to be that kind of neighbor, how might that change the way you speak and the way that you engage the conversation, the situation, the discussion, or the debate about the immigrant? How might that shape your posture and your tone when you approach the conversation about those who find themselves in the situation of being refugees? How would it change the way that you talk about people, people who are moms and dads and sons and daughters and too many children than we can count all across our world, whose life circumstance has created this situation where they've had to leave behind the only home they ever knew. And they have nowhere to go. How would it change the way that you speak to the people in your life who are afraid? The people in your life who fear for their own security? The people in your life who fear for the safety of their children and their grandchildren? How would it change the posture and the tone that you have when you engage with people with whom you disagree? How would it change the way that you respond to the sea of people who surround you each and every day who all are scared and afraid? I mean, have you thought about that? It, it, it doesn't present itself that way right? And it presents itself as frustration and anger, and it presents itself as division. And, but have you thought about that everyone's afraid? Everyone's scared? And part of what I've learned as a pastor and in my own life as a human being who often allows fear to diminish my own faith is that you don't talk people out of fear, you don't logically move them from this place to this place. You listen to them. And in compassion and in empathy, you seek to walk a mile in their shoes and understand what's really going on in the depths of their souls. And when you feel like you have listened enough, you listen some more. And you adopt the posture of Jesus. You, you are present 
with that fear and that pain. And when you have the opportunity to speak that bold word of truth and life that says, I feel that too, you speak it. Because sometimes the most life-giving thing we hear is you're not alone. We all, we all feel that way. We're surrounded by it. And, and I want you to grab hold of that wrestling is not about knowledge. It's not about answers. And it's not even really about wrestling with the Bible. When you're really wrestling with the Bible, you are wrestling with Jesus. You are wrestling with Jesus. And in my own life, here's how I would articulate that for you. When I am wrestling with Jesus, here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is forcing me. He is forcing me to loosen my grip and my allegiance to any kingdom that is not his kingdom. He's forcing me to loosen my grip on the kingdom of my fear, the kingdom of my, uh, my, my, my own self, the kingdom of my desire, the kingdom of my comfort, the kingdom of my pleasure, the kingdom of my security, and, 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 and my, my, my sense of being able to keep myself from being vulnerable. He is, he is, this may hurt someone, he is forcing me to give up the kingdom where I get to be right. And he is forcing me to give it up because there's a better kingdom that he is inviting me to embrace. And I don't like it any more than you do. (laughs) It's not fun and it's not easy. But it's what happens when we wrestle with Jesus. He claims more and more of our life. And he stirs up within us an awareness of the places where he is not Lord. And he must be. And so this week, on your behalf, I've done a lot of wrestling. Those who know me best would probably not describe me as the most courageous person in the world. I don't believe in taking unnecessary risks, so if you want to jump out of a plane, that's fine. But if it's fine, I'm staying in the plane, okay? I just don't get that. I'm not going to, I'm not, I don't believe in that. Uh, uh, But I want you to know that I don't, I don't fear making you upset with me. I don't don't fear you coming to church one weekend and thinking, oh, he's not supposed to be talking about that kind of stuff. What's he doing? Like, get back over there. Get back in the Bible. I believe the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It all matters. It all matters. But I'll tell you what I do fear. I fear my own pride. I fear my own theological arrogance. I fear my own self-righteousness. And I fear not having the courage to wrestle with Jesus and in that to invite you to do the same. Because when we do, we're allowing Jesus to claim more and more of our lives and we're taking one more step into our full citizenship in His kingdom. And so it's appropriate today that we come to this table, which is for us the tangible representation of God's kingdom. On this table, there are elements that represent God's love and grace. 
and they are elements that do not remind us of the power of that as much as they remind us of the vulnerability and weakness that he was willing to embrace, the suffering that he endured in order to bring love into the world and into each of our lives. They remind us that Jesus saw the road that leads to life, and he knew that we could not walk it on our own. And so he walked it ahead of us. And while walking ahead of us, he did for us what no one else could do. His body was broken. And his blood was shed. And before the servant could conquer the world, the servant first had to suffer a horrible death. And this table where we come to receive these elements that represent the life and love of God, this is not our table. This is God's table. And at God's table, there's always enough. There's always enough bread. There's always enough juice. There's always enough grace. And everyone is invited to this table. Because it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. And so in preparation for coming to receive this gift, the, this remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus and the symbols of the present and future kingdom, let us pray together as people of faith. Lord Jesus, as we come to this table, we pray that you would give us the courage and the humility to be able to let go of any allegiance that we may have to a kingdom that does not belong to you. We pray, Lord, that we would be willing to let go of our fear, that we would be able to let go of our anger, that we, Lord, would be willing to lay down our hurt, that we, Lord, would be able to confess to you that those words we shared with that person that we love were not the best words. And that we in humility not only want to seek your forgiveness, but we want your spirit to give us the courage to bring healing where, they, where there may now be a rift. Blessed are the peacemakers, you said, Lord, and so by your grace, give us the strength to be people who bring peace. Give us the strength to be people who receive grace in order to share it with the world. And so we pray, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and juice, that they may be for us the body and blood of Christ, and that in receiving them we may be reminded that we are called to be the body of Christ, and that we have been saved, redeemed, and set free by the gift of his blood. All this we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.